0: There once was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country and he began to feel it. He signed on with a the citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs and the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all these farm hands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am, starving to death. I'm going back to my father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants. Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, Your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stomped off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, Look how many years I've stayed here serving you never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, Son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate This brother of yours was dead and he's alive, he was lost and he's found.
1: Well, hey, good morning. Hamilton Mill Church. It is so good to be with you. My name is Jake, like Ellie said, and I serve on our staff here as our high school pastor. And I'm incredibly excited this morning to continue and and wrap up this series that we have been in the past two weeks called Prodigals. And over the past two weeks, we have looked at three stories, three parables that Jesus told in order to convey the heart of God. The first story was a story about a sheep. The second story was a story about a coin, and we looked at those two stories the first week and, and talked about this idea that God has a type. We kind of make this joke that, that God has a type, and that God's type is lost people, because he wants lost people to be found people. And then last week, we looked at the third story, which really the first two stories are kind of setting up the crescendo of the point of Jesus, which is the third story. It's the story of the lost son, the story of the prodigal son. You may have grown up hearing that name. And the entire reason that Jesus told all three of these stories, and he told them together, and the reason was because he wanted to convey to us what is the heart of God. Because like everyone that's listening, you and I, we all have a picture of what God is like, who he is, who he really is. And maybe for some of you, you grew up hearing about God, you grew up in church, you grew up hearing stories about God, and and you have a picture in your mind of who he is. And as you have grown up, the, the picture you have in your mind has kind of evolved with you and kind of grown up with you. For example, maybe when you are a kid and you thought about God, you thought of like a jolly old man with rosy red cheeks and a big white beard, and you thought of God looking like Santa Claus like this. This is specifically the Santa Claus that you see at the mall that you pay a lot of money for your kids to take a picture with, and then they do this. But maybe you think about God and he has this like nice list and he has this naughty list, and and if you do the right things, you end up on the nice list and you get the things that you want. And if you do the wrong things, you end up on the naughty list and you don't get the things that you want. Or if mom decides she has to buy a new car this Christmas, you don't get the things that you want. Maybe you grew up and you were in middle school and high school and you started to think about God as like a principal. And maybe for you, coming to church, it feels a little bit like going to the principal's office. Like you got to stand up a little bit straighter. you got to be buttoned up. you got to say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. I grew up at a school where if you did something wrong, the principal was allowed to paddle you if your parents had signed the little permission slip. And so every year, the first day of school, my mom, I get in the car. She's like, where's the form? I'm signing that thing. But I did nothing wrong because he was ex-military. And that's scary. Maybe you grew up and, and you went to college. And you started to view God the way that you viewed your parents, the way that for some of you, your adult children view you, like an ATM. (laughs) Look how excited she is to take your money. But maybe you think that like this relationship that you have with God is transactional. Like if I punch in the right code, in the right order, that, that I get what I want. That if I do enough good things, if I, if I do the right things, if I say the right words, if I do my chores on time, if I do my chores the right way, whatever it takes to, to do, I get. And the more that I do, the more that I get. The more often I go, the more often I get. Maybe for some of you, you became a real adult, and you got your first real job, and you got your first real boss. And so you started to view God the way that you view your boss Let me tell you, the scariest thing for me in the middle of the week is when this pops up on my phone. This is our lead pastor, Rahul. He's my boss. And he is an amazing boss. He's watching online. But man, when I get this call, the first thought that goes to my mind is, what did I do? I must've done something wrong. Like I'm like racking my brain about why is he calling me? Like, like, have we, was I supposed to do something that I didn't do? Did I do something wrong? And like, I'm like answering the phone. I'm like, Hey, I don't know what I did, but I'm sorry. Because the way that, that sometimes we view our bosses, but not Rahul because he's amazing. But sometimes the way that we view our bosses is like, man, every conversation that I have with you is going to be about something that I did wrong. That, that my value to you is dependent on my performance that if I check all the right boxes and I do the things that are on my list of things to do, then like we can be good. That, that we're, we have a great relationship. That I can stay here and I can work here. Or maybe that, that man, the way that I relate to my boss is only in the confines of my nine to five, Monday to Friday. And we do the same thing with God. We put him in a box. Like, like this is where God belongs and, and I'm gonna listen to him and I'm gonna obey him at this part of, of my life. But outside of that, then I'm just gonna do my own thing. And even if you didn't grow up with, with God and you didn't grow up in a family that, that was religious, you probably still have a picture of God in mind. You have a picture of God or an idea of who he is because of things that he did or didn't do for you. Things that he may have allowed to happen in your life. Maybe there was, maybe, this is crazy, there were some Christians who didn't always act like Christians. And the way they treated you, you're like, man, if God is that way, I don't, I don't know if I want any part of that that all of us, we have a way that we think about God and it matters. Something that I learned when I was in college with my biology degree that I'm not using, um, but I'm using it today, mom, so your money was not in vain. Um, I learned this concept is that the thoughts that we think in our mind, as as they they sit there, the way our brain works, the thoughts in our minds will shape our beliefs and then our beliefs will shape our behavior. It works like this, like, like if you think that you are going to fail a test, you will eventually start to believe that there's nothing that you can do to pass the test. And so then you will not study for the test and then you fail the test. But the same pattern of our brains works with God too. Like if you think about God, like, like he's, he's like Santa Claus, then, then you will live your life thinking that and believing that in order for me to, to have a relationship with God, I have to earn it. I have to stay on his nice list. And if I do something wrong and I'm like starting to lean towards the naughty list, I gotta do a couple other good things to kind of balance that out. And maybe you even start to treat other people that way, that, that they have to balance out their good deeds and bad deeds with you in order to have a relationship with you. Maybe if you think about God like, like he's a principle, and I don't know what your principle was like, but I always had this picture of my principle that, that he was judgmental and un- unforgiving. And if we think about God that way, then then man, we, we always come with this mentality that we're too far gone. There's nothing that I'm gonna be able to do to live up to the standard that you have for me. You only show up when it's time to punish me and so I don't really want anything to do with you and so you push him away. You push godly people away because if that's what he's like, you don't want any part of it. Or maybe if you think about God like an ATM, then you think that his entire purpose for your life is to make you happy. And so you're doing all the good things and you're volunteering at church and you're in a small group and you're like, you know, even paying for the person behind you at Starbucks. You even like open the door for someone even though you're running late and then life doesn't go your way. And you're like, but I'm a good person. Like, if I'm a good person and I'm not getting what I want, then surely God must not like me. God must not love me. And so you'll get angry, you'll get bitter. You might start to believe that He doesn't even exist. Maybe you start to view God like a boss and you're his employee and he is just looking over your shoulder and waiting for you to mess up. And so you believe that you have to hide your mistakes. You have to hide the things that you've done wrong. You have to hide from him. And not only do you hide from him, you hide from other people too. You don't wanna let anyone in because people can't know that, that, I'm, that I made mistakes. Here's here's the reality, is that it is difficult to get life right when you get God wrong. And when you get life wrong, when you get God wrong, people get hurt. And you get hurt. In fact, there might be some of you in the room this morning, and the reason you have kept God and this idea of God at a distance is because you've gotten hurt by people who've gotten God wrong. That There have been people in your life who, who had a picture of who God is and, and who, who he likes. And they didn't think that he liked you, and so they didn't like you. And you're like, well, if that is what God's like. I don't want anything to do with that. How we think about God, it matters. I came across a quote a couple years ago that, that really shook me. And to be honest with you, I wasn't sure when I first read it if it was true. And it's a quote by an author by the name of A.W. Tozer. And this is what he says about the importance of thinking of God. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, you might read that and be like, That's, nah, nah, I disagree with that. Like, if I were to ask you, hey, what do you think is the most important thing about you? You might say, well, I'm a husband. I'm, I'm, I'm a wife. I'm, I'm a mom. I'm a dad. The the way that I've responded to life and I've bounced up and been resilient, my character, the way that I treat people who treat me poorly, like that is what is most important about me. My job, the way I contribute to society, that is what is most important about me. But what Tozer is claiming and what I've come to believe in my life is true is that all those things are incredibly important, but they are not the most important thing about you. Because ultimately, what comes into your mind when you think about God, and ultimately what you believe about God, will affect what you believe about yourself. And it will affect what you believe about other people, which will eventually affect who you marry, it will affect the way that you raise your kids. It will affect what job you take and, and what you do when the job doesn't go the way you want it to and what, how you respond when life doesn't go the way you want it to. Like, like what we think about God, what we believe about God, even if you don't believe in God at all, like, like all of those thoughts and those beliefs, they, they matter a great deal to who we are and who we become. And that is why Jesus told these three stories. Because it matters what we think about when we think about God and a lot of us think about God wrong. Maybe it's not completely incorrect, but it's incomplete. And so he told these three stories, and one of them is about a shepherd. And the shepherd has a hundred sheep, and one day, one of the sheep runs—sheeps, that's not correct. One of the sheep, (laughs) he runs away. And then the shepherd goes, he leaves the 99, he goes looking for the sheep, singular. And when he finds it, he throws it over his shoulders, and he brings it home, and he calls his friends and his neighbors, and he's like, we got to celebrate. Because the sheep was lost and now he's found. And then he tells another story. And this is about a woman and she has 10 coins. And and each of the coins is worth about a day's wages. But one day she loses one of the coins and she turns her entire house upside down trying to find it. And when she does, she calls her friends and her neighbors and she celebrates. Because this coin was lost and now it's found. And then he tells his third story. And ultimately, his third story was the point of all of the stories. And and we are super familiar with this story. If, If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this story a million times. In fact, we literally talked about it last week. It's the story of the lost son. But as we talked about last week, this really is a story about two lost sons. Because the father had two sons, and both of them were lost. And last week, we kind of focused on the sons and the actions of the sons and the invitation of the father to come home. But, but this week, I want us to focus and zoom in on, on the response in the heart of the father. Because ultimately, the reason that, that Jesus is talking about a father is because he wants us to see that God is like this father, that God treats humanity the way that this father treats his sons. And so Jesus begins at this story. He says there was a man and he had two sons. And one day the younger of the sons comes to his dad. And he's like, hey, I want my share of the inheritance and I want it now. Even though that's something I'm supposed to get when you're dead, I want it now. And so the father liquidates half of his property and he gives the cash to his son. And the son runs off to a distant country. And he spends it all in wild and reckless living. And I don't know why, but when I was growing up, I always pictured that this was like Vegas because like nothing is more sinful than Vegas. And so he's in Vegas or wherever he is and then he spends all of it. And eventually he runs out of money and then this, there's a famine that, that wipes out everything and he has no food. And in order to survive, because he is so hungry, he becomes a servant. He hires himself out to a servant and ends up in a pig pen. He's cleaning up after the pigs. Which in Jewish culture, pigs are seen as an unclean animal. So in other words, he is at rock bottom. The lowest he's ever been in his life. In fact, it gets to a point that he gets so hungry that the food of the pigs starts to look appetizing. And so he kind of comes to his senses. He's like, wait a minute. I I could go be a servant for my father. And he would feed me. Like he might not accept me back as a son, but he'll, he'll take me back as a servant and I can work for him. And so he gets this speech ready to go back home to his father. And that's what we're gonna pick back up in the story this morning in Luke chapter 15. This is what Jesus says in verse 20. It says, so he got up, the younger son, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with blank? How would you fill in the blank? If you are the younger son, how do you hope the dad fills in the blank? How did your earthly dad fill in the blank? Depending on what your experience is with your earthly father, you might expect a father to who was watching his son who just ran away and spent half of his living and wasted it all, you might expect this father to be angry, to be frustrated, to give him this, I told you so speech, this like, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed speech. Maybe you didn't expect him to be there at all. The younger son at least thinks enough of his dad to believe that, man, if I go home, my dad will take me back as a servant. And so he, he does go home, but it kind of makes me wonder, man, what if he didn't think that about his dad? What if he didn't? Th- my, there's no way my dad's going to take me back after what I've done. What, what if he believed that, that his dad wanted nothing to do with him? He would have stayed at rock bottom. And this is why it matters what we think about God. Because when when we reach a moment of desperation or of hopelessness, when we have come to our senses and, and realize that, man, I need to go back to God. If we don't believe that he's trustworthy, if we don't believe that he loves us, if we don't believe that he cares about us, we're not going home. We're staying where we are. It matters what we think about God. This is how the father actually responds. It says, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and he kissed him. I love this detail that, that Luke includes that, that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Like, he wasn't like perched up in the lazy boy, like watching NASCAR on a Sunday afternoon, and someone's like, hey, yo, your son's coming back up the driveway. He wasn't like out back, grilling up in his New Balances and cargo shorts, and it was like, you know, flipping patties on the grill, and it's like, yo, yo, your son's coming home. We don't know how long the son had been gone. We, we, don't, we don't know how long it took him to blow his entire inheritance, but I imagine it took a minute. A couple weeks, a couple months maybe. We don't know how long the son had been gone, but what we know is that when he comes back, the father was waiting for him. He never gave up on him. And He always kept the light on. And when I imagine what the son might have looked like, I, I, I can't help but think like, Man, I bet he wasn't cute. (laughs) Like, I bet he was filthy. Like, he had just spent a considerable amount of time with the pigs, and then he he walked this whole way home, which they didn't have paved roads back then, so he's probably dusty and dirty. He probably doesn't smell that great. And he's coming up over the hill, and he, he feels like he's at his lowest. He looks like he's at his lowest. And his father sees him. And your heavenly father sees you. In the middle of your mess, whether you caused it or not, he sees you. And when he sees you, he is full of compassion. This word that, that means empathy taken to another level. Like it, it's empathy that, that takes us to action. In fact, what's interesting, uh, taking you on a little lesson, the, the word compassion actually comes from a Latin word that means to suffer with And this word in Latin is actually very closely related to the word in Hebrew that means womb. So what Jesus is trying to get his listeners and what what he's trying to get us 2,000 years later to understand is that the same kind of compassion that a mother who's been carrying a child in her womb for nine months feels towards her child is the same, honestly, greater compassion that your Father in heaven sees and feels for you. And I think that's really important because for a lot of us, compassionate is not the word we would have used to describe our fathers. It's not the word that you would currently use to describe your father. In fact, I imagine for a lot of us that that thinking about God as a father is actually a really difficult thing to do. I know for me that um, I grew up with a dad that um, he left really early in the morning to go to work and then he came home really late at night, sometimes after dinner from work. He had a job that, that he had to travel a lot, and so he wasn't always home. He was definitely emotionally distant in a lot of ways. And then when I was in the sixth grade, my dad had a couple back surgeries to fix some problems he had. And after the second one, he got an infection that paralyzed him from the chest down. And my mom had to go back to work. She was staying at home before. She had to go back to work. And and my dad, we had to move him to a rehab facility 30 minutes down the road so me and my brother could go to school. And I feel like I raised myself. And an emotionally distant dad became a physically distant dad. And then my junior year of college, my dad got really sick and he passed away. And so as you can probably imagine, calling God a father, thinking about God as a father doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I don't even know, like my brain, won't, I don't know what that's supposed to look like. What that's supposed to be like? And maybe that's really difficult for you too. But I think that's actually the point. That Jesus is trying to get us to see that that God is not the reflection of your earthly Father. He is the perfection of your earthly Father. That, that while you may have had a God or a dad that was absent, God, your heavenly Father, he is present. Maybe you grew up with a dad who was angry, but, but this heavenly Father, he is patient and compassionate. Maybe you had a father who withheld his love. He didn't, he didn't remind you that he loved you, that you felt unloved, but, but this father is not like that. He, he lavishly gives his love to us. And even if you had an amazing dad, you're like, my dad's awesome. This father is so much greater than any father you've ever known. This compassion is a greater compassion than any compassion you've ever known. It was a compassion that led him to do what seemed like the most reckless thing that he could have done, which was to send his son into the mess of humanity to suffer with us so that we could be his sons and his daughters. That he didn't just watch us and, and see us and watch us. That he felt compassion and he moved in our direction through his son, Jesus. And the same thing is true about the father in this story. When he sees his son, he feels compassion for him. He doesn't just like watch him walk home. No, he goes and he runs towards his son. And everyone listening to the story at this point would probably have been like, that doesn't sound right. Because in Jewish culture, like what is true is that, is that sophisticated, wealthy men of status did not run. Like young men, women, children, like they—they, they, it was perfectly acceptable for them to run, but for a man of wealth and status to run, it was socially unacceptable. In fact, it also was kind of like physically hindered because men of this status typically had some sort of robe or outer garment that would have prevented them from being able to run. And so, in order for him to run, he would have had to have taken off that robe, taken off that sign of his status, and run towards his kid. It was embarrassing. It was reckless, but it didn't matter. All that mattered was that his son was home and he was going to do everything he had to do to get to his son as fast as possible. And you might be listening and if you're like, well, yeah, if the father is that compassionate, if he's that loving, of course he's got to run to his kid. But there's actually another reason why the father had to run. You see, what's also true in Jewish culture is that if you gave up your Jewish inheritance to someone who was not Jewish, it was not only irresponsible, it was unforgivable. And and what would happen if you decided to come back home is that the elders of the town would come and meet you at the city gates. And they would, in a ceremony, cut you off, not only from the city, but from your family because of what you have done, because of what you have given up. That because of your actions, because of what you have done, you are no longer allowed to come in. You are no longer allowed to come home. And then the younger son would have known this because the ceremony was as common as to us a speeding ticket is. And so he, he knew that coming home, he would likely face a lot of shame and humiliation. And there's a good chance that he won't even be able to come home but if there's even a chance. And the father also knows that this is true. And so as soon as he sees his kid, he takes off. He is willing to take the shame. He is willing to take the humiliation. He is willing to take the embarrassment and and he is willing to take the cutting off in order to get to his son, to run past his son's accusers, to get to his son first. And when he gets there, there's no scolding. There's no shame. There's no, I told you so. There's no, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed speech. No, he, he, he gets his servants. And he's like, yo, come, come bring the, the best robe we got and come bring the family ring and the sandals and, and let's throw a party. Let's like cook up the best steak we got and let, us throw a party. Cause my son was, was lost. And now he's found he's home. And man, I imagine that for a lot of you in the room, that is all that you need to hear. Because maybe now or at some other point in your life, you have felt like the younger brother. Like you have gone and you have been reckless and you have done things that you know you weren't supposed to do and it feels like coming home is impossible. And maybe just knowing in the back of your mind that, that having a heavenly father, thinking about God as a heavenly father who is compassionate, who sees you in your mess, he feels compassionate and he goes running for you. Maybe for some of you in the room, that's all you need to hear. Maybe there's someone in your life that, that you feel that way about, and you're like, I just need to be reminded that God loves me, and he loves this, these other people who, who relate a lot to the younger brother. But I also know that for a lot of us, myself included, that's not my story. In fact, I relate a lot more to the older brother. Because remember, this is a story about two sons. Two sons. And while all of this was going on, the older son was was out busting his tail in the field, doing what he was supposed to do. And this is what happens when he starts to come home. And uh, verse 25, it says, meanwhile, the older son was was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? Like he has been working out in the field and and as he, he starts to come home, He's, it's time to clock out for the day, it's time, the sun's probably setting, it's, he's been working all day, he gets close to the house, and he, there's like a party going on, that no one invited him to, like DJ is bumping yeah by usher, and everyone is on the dance floor, like they're going in, I didn't know about this, what's going on, and the servant is like, yeah, like you, your brother came home, like you know, he was, he was lost, he's been gone for a while, he came home, And we're throwing this huge party. And this is the older brother's response. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders yet. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And honestly, I get it. That's not fair. Like he probably grew up his whole life being so obedient. Like I'm definitely the favorite in the family. I've always done everything you've asked. I've worked harder than you've asked me to do. But there's never been a party for me. And I imagine it feels even worse because... The son probably also was really filthy because he'd been working all day. But he was filthy because he was doing his job, not because he ran away and and blew the family money. But what I love about the story is that Jesus says that the father also went out to his son, his older son. He saw his older son. He felt compassion for his older son. And he went out, he left a party. He moves in his direction and he reminds his son of what has always been true. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. The father loves both of his sons. The father cares about both of his sons, even though one of them really messed up. And even though the other one was throwing this fit out of entitlement, he didn't tie their value to what they did, good or bad. Their value to him was who they are, that they're sons. But they didn't see themselves that way. Because both of them had a misunderstanding of the heart of their father. The younger son thought about his father kind of like an ATM. And when the money runs out, he forgets that he has value as a son. And he goes home and thinking he's going to be a servant. He completely forgets who he is. And then the older son, he he probably thinks of God a lot like a boss. And and I'm an employee and I'm working really hard. And the harder I work, the more that I'm going to get. And the more my father's going to love me. And I'm going to earn his affirmation and his acceptance. And he saw himself not as a son, but as an employee. And the same thing is true about us that if you don't see God as a father, you will not see yourself as a son, you will not see yourself as a daughter. That if you can't think about God as as a loving and compassionate father, you won't see the value that he sees in you. Your value will depend on you. You, You'll believe that that you're not good enough and you're constantly striving to try and measure up and follow all the rules. And maybe you'll even get to a point where you're like, it's not even worth trying to follow the rules because I can't. That you will work so hard your whole life to earn an acceptance that he's already given you because you're his son, you're his daughter. But he's offered us freedom from that because he knows that we're prone to forget. And so he reminds us and he offers us there is freedom from shame, there is freedom from striving. If you will think about him as a father, believe that he cares about you and loves you as a son, as a daughter, then you will be able to live your life like that. Walking in freedom, walking in grace, knowing that the rules that he's put on your life, that that they're not there to like prevent you from something good. They're there to keep you from something bad because he cares about you. And yes, there are so consequences for when we mess up and when we miss the mark, but when you know the Father's heart, you know that his consequences, that they're not there just to punish you. They're there because he wants you to learn there's a better way to live. That we don't follow the rules just because that's what it does to get us to God. He gives us the rules because he loves us and he wants the best for us. He wants the best for you. So this morning, will you consider thinking about God as your father? Calling him father. And maybe for some of you, that's the first time in a long time that you have even thought about God that way. That feels really relational for the way that I think about God. And I'm asking you this morning, would you change your thinking? Would you change what you believe about him? In fact, there might even be some of you in the room this morning who would say, I have never in my life considered that that is true. I have never in my life considered that God would want someone like me because I know the crap that I've got in my past. I know the things that I've done, and I know the things that I have walked through. There's no way. I don't care how compassionate God is, He's not compassionate enough for what I've done. But He went to the greatest lengths to prove to you that that is not true. That He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for your sins, for all of your mistakes, past, present, and future. And after Jesus died on the third day, he rose from the dead so that that we can overcome every grave. That that his resurrection overwhelmed all our shame like we sang about earlier. Like like everything that he has done has been to prove to you that, that no matter how far you've run away, no matter where you've gone, no matter what you've done, you can come home. And when you come home, I'm here with open arms. And when you believe that that is true, when you constantly remind yourself that is true, it changes everything. It changes the way that you interact with your spouse, it changes the way that you parent, it changes the way that you go to school, it changes the way that you go to work, it changes the way that you sit in traffic, it changes the way that that you think about yourself when you're alone, your thoughts, It, it changes everything because you see yourself as valuable simply because you're his son, you're his daughter. And that's the life that he has for you. I imagine that that it really hurts God to see us try and earn something that he already has given us. And when we change our thinking and change our belief about him, it's easier to believe that that is true. And that all we have to do is take what he's trying to give us, which is a relationship, which is grace, which is freedom. So would you consider doing that this morning? Thinking about God as a father. Thinking about yourself as his son, as his daughter. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, Father, I'm so grateful for this story because even though this isn't a real story, it, it feels very real to me because this is our story. Whether we feel like the younger son or the older son, God, this is our story. That you're a father who is compassionate and who is loving and who cares about us no matter what we've done or where we've been. That we can come home and even though there might, we might be afraid of shame and f- uh, afraid of humiliation, God, God, you are willing to take that. You are willing to run past our accusers so that we can live in a relationship with you for eternity. Father, we are just so grateful for that this morning. So grateful for Jesus and that, that you sent your only son to die for our sins so that we don't have to pay the punishment that we deserve, so that we can come home. Um, we're gonna keep praying, so you can keep your eyes closed for a second, but um, if you're in the room this morning and and maybe this is the first time that you have heard this good news, that there's a God who sees you and has compassion for you and is running for you, if, if that's you in the room this morning, I, I just... I want to give you the same invitation that the Father is giving you, which is to come home. The invitation that you don't have to be overwhelmed by your shame or your guilt or anything that is holding you back from entering into a relationship with him. And so I'm going to pray a prayer. And, and the words of this prayer aren't special. What is special is the God that we're praying to. And, and, and you can repeat this. If you're in the room and you, you're like, hey, I, I want that for myself. And I'm not really sure what it means, but I want to be in a relationship with God. If that's you in the room this morning, I'm gonna say this prayer and you can just repeat it in your head after me. And it will help you say, say in your mind what your heart has been wanting to say, which is that I want to come home. So you just pray, Heavenly Father, I know that I have made mistakes, but I also know that you sent your only son, Jesus, to take the punishment in my place, to die the death I deserved. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and he defeated every sin, every mistake so that I can be your son, I can be your daughter, I trust you today as my savior so that I can spend eternity with you. If you just prayed that prayer, I'm gonna ask you to do something really brave. I know for me that sometimes it's helpful to do something physically that like I've been trying to to think of and and do in my heart emotionally. And so it's helpful to kind of tie those two actions together. And so um, if if that's true, if you just prayed that prayer this morning, I would love for you, would you just slip your hand up? Yeah. I see you. Your father sees you. And he's proud. Heavenly Father, thank you. God, I'm so thankful that the God who saved is still saving. That the God who loved is still loving. God, thank you that you are the father in this story. And thank you that we get to be your sons and
0: your daughters. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.